It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Mirabai's Star is a translator of many books on Christian mysticism and Christian saints. She says, In spite of the undeniable history of abuses committed in the name of religion, the monotheistic faiths offer innumerable points of access to the realm of love. Today we'll be visiting the teachings of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam to glean their unifying wisdom with our guest Mirabai Starr. Mirabai Starr is an adjunct professor of philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, Taos. She is a certified bereavement counselor and travels the world speaking and giving workshops on contemplative practice and the teachings of the mystics. Her books include the critically acclaimed translations Dark Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross, The Interior Castle, St. Teresa of Avila, and the six-volume Sounds True Christian Mystics series Devotion, Prayers, and Living Wisdom. She's the author of God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Join us for the next hour as we explore the God of love as seen through the eyes of Jewish, Christian, and Muslim mystics with our guest Mirabai Starr. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mirabai, welcome. It's so wonderful to be with you again, Justine. It's grand to have you. It's so grand to be with you. Mirabai, let's go back a little bit to your background. You were grew up in New Mexico, and you lived for in much of your young life at the Lama Foundation, and you were in, initiated into four different traditions. So tell us about mm-hmm. that. Well, actually, my family was completely non-religious. In fact, they were secular Jews who had rejected very consciously all organized religion from throughout my life. And they were very active in the anti-war movement of the Vietnam era and very much interested in alternative lifestyles and the counterculture. And that led us from suburban Long Island, New York in 1973 to the mountains of northern New Mexico, where there was really an enclave of people exploring uh, alternative lifestyles and communal living and a kind of back-to-the-land lifestyle. And by the way, that was via uh, six months in Mexico, in in the wild regions of the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, which in the early 1970s was completely undeveloped. Uh, anyway, eventually we ended up in Taos, and that was a kind of a crossroads, as it had has been probably for a thousand years, but it was certainly a crossroads in the early 1970s for many different religious and spiritual paths. So in Taos, through Lama Foundation, 
which actually was running at the time the alternative school that, that we kids went to, I was exposed to primarily the Eastern traditions, which, by the way, didn't annoy my parents nearly as much as the Judeo-Christian traditions, because they could call it Eastern philosophy and embrace it much more than if it were an overt religious uh, kind of orientation rather than more philosophical one. But anyway, I was exposed to Hinduism, Buddhism, certainly to Native American traditions uh, through the Taos Pueblo, and Sufism primarily really and not Sufism Judaism as a, as a uh, the mystical tradition of Islam Islam exactly in fact because my exposure to Islam came through Sufism the mystical and kind of ecstatic practice of Islam I've never had anything other than an incredibly positive relationship with Islam and so the current media version of Islam in America just baffles me utterly because my exposure to Islam was through the ecstatic Sufis, primarily Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. And so tell me about how you accepted these. You, In the Hinduism, what, what did that mean to you? What? Right. Well, in spite of, or perhaps because of my parents' iconoclasm, I was in, incredibly drawn to every religion that I encountered. And there were many that were represented in, in our community of Taos, New Mexico. And and so because Lama Foundation was involved with our school, I ended up spending a lot of time up in the mountains in the Lama Foundation, for those of your listeners who do, do not know, is kind of the original interspiritual community where all of the world's major religious paths have been honored, celebrated, and practiced and studied since its inception in 1967. Uh, Lama Foundation, by the way, is where Ramdas created Be Here Now. So that was, it was kind of on the map for that reason. And so because of Ramdas, actually, and my association with Lama at an early age, I encountered Neem Karoli Baba, who was Ramdas's guru. In, in Be Here Now, he's referred to simply as Maharaji. And Maharaji, but at when I was 14, Maharaji became my guru, meaning I had this incredible love devotional response, originally just to his picture and little by little to his teachings. This book, God of Love, that I have just um, come out with is dedicated to Maharaji because it was his teachings that really led me on to an interspiritual path. So even though he was technically a Hindu, he was really... Uh, he was a shaman. He was a wild man. He was a true wisdom teacher who broke down all the established barriers and just taught a direct path of love. And he was a rascal and he was unpredictable. And, and uh, that, he was my kind of guru. Mm. But his famous saying was, sub ek, all is one. In, in that tradition that he was following, the great saint Ramakrishna uh, he was a. He studied all the religions too, didn't he? Ramakrishna is a beautiful example of this interspiritual path. He really led the way, and I I speak about Ramakrishna, especially at the end of God of Love, as the exemplar of this interspiritual path. He had a profound relationship, although he was born Hindu, with Jesus Christ and with Mother Mary. Um, he was definitely a, dev a devotee of the mother, of the divine feminine, of Kali. Um, he had an experience of channeling the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, 
And he did the Salat five times a day for a while. As a Hindu, he practiced as a Muslim. It was not a political action for him. It was a living, transformational experience inside his own heart, which, of course, has political ramifications. Right, exactly. So talk about how your Jewish faith then developed, because your parents were not like practicing Jews in in that sense. No, they made fun of it. (laughs) They made fun of me. They now, by the way, are incredibly supportive and loving and respectful of everything that I do and uh, am, but definitely didn't know quite what to make of me as a a child and an adolescent being drawn so deeply to religion in every form when they had so conscientiously said no to the abuses of religion. They, they, as so many people do, identified religion with the atrocities that have been committed in the name of God over the centuries and now and throughout the cultures. Whereas for me, um, the, the religious impulse was independent of the, the political and social and power plays that uh, have happened in the name of religion that had nothing to do with the experience of the sacred that I was having every time I encountered the depth of a religious tradition. But it took me a long time to re- reconnect with Judaism. I I met Reb Zalman when I was very young, when I was 16. And at the time I was tempted, as I was with all the religions, to pick one, and it would have been Judaism because Reb Zalman was breathing new life into Judaism in such a beautiful way that he developed over the next four decades um, in more and more important, relevant, beautiful ways. But I, I was never able, Justine, to pick one. And, I, and I'd like to, to talk about that more. Oh, please do, because some would say, oh, well, she's a dilettante. She's just kind of jumping lightly from this to this to this. So say something about that. I have a that. lot to say yeah. about that. By the way, I have, uh, I have returned to my Jewish roots, and it is one of my root traditions. I do practice um, numerous spiritual traditions, which is what this book is about, and Judaism is certainly one of them now. I feel very much at home there, but not to the exclusion of, of other paths. So that's a really excellent question. How is this interspiritual path not just a path of convenience, feel-good, light, fluffy spirituality for those who are not willing to show up for the hard work of the spiritual path. To me, the the interspiritual path is the path of love, and it is the most challenging, rigorous, disciplined path I could imagine. It would be much easier to pick a single tradition and do what they tell you and believe what you're told. And I actually deeply honor those who are rooted in a single tradition. And we need people to hold that place at the table and to to have that connection with the ancient roots of existing wisdom traditions that have important containers that have been very carefully crafted over millennia in, in some cases. So I honor those deeply. What makes this path not a path of convenience for spiritual dilettantes who are in, just interested in dabbling, is that when you say yes to love in any of its many forms, in all of its guises, it means you are showing up for the hard work of transformation. You are welcoming the stranger. You are, you are countering the impulse in yourself to other eyes to say, those people are fundamentalists. I'm not like that. I'm inclusive. I am a progressive political spiritual being who would never 
talk about hellfire and say that anyone who didn't believe like me was in spiritual trouble. So the minute we judge fundamentalists, for instance, we are otherizing. For me, the interspiritual path requires tremendous discipline to show up, to disarm our hearts, and to be willing to experience the sacred in any and all of its forms and guises, knowing that ultimately the supreme reality transcends all form and all containers and all definitions, certainly all theological constructs. And yet the existing wisdom traditions have so much beauty to offer and so much transformational medicine so that not only are we able to find beauty and find love inside each tradition, but we are able to be transformed by the, by the wisdom they offer so that we can then offer love back to the world. I'm here with Mirabai Starr, and she's the author of God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And if you'd like to be in touch with her and look up her work and her schedules, you can go to her website, MirabaiStar.com, and Mirabai is spelled M-I-R-A-B, as in boy, A-I, star, S-T-A-R-R.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Mirabai Star, and we're talking about the God of love and the connection of the three Abrahamic faiths, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, who have roots. I mean, they're, they're, they have a foundational root uh, with their, all, all are coming out of the father Abraham. Um, so as you were talking about Holding all these fates, I, I kind of think of you, Mirabai, as a real ecstatic yourself. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you notice you, that you you really follow that route of of ecstasy and in in the love of God and the the love of all the divine essence of the mystery and um, your enthusiasm for all of that is infectious. And and in this book, this is very different from any of your other books. This this is done in your own voice. There, there's a lot of you in this book. You give examples uh, from your own life or from the lives of some people that you have encountered and know. Uh, 
and so this this one is is a, a wonderful delving into the spiritual path of an aesthetic, <laughs> I must say. So as you were talking, you were you were saying something about how to be inclusive of everyone and even being inclusive of of the fundamentalists. Uh, and I just was thinking as you said that, I was thinking driving here on the street corner um, at a stoplight, there were two young men in full suits with their books under their arm, and they were talking to a woman on the corner there. Um, and I, I figured, okay, they're either Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, uh, one or the other. And what I noticed about them that just made my heart sing was that they were all laughing together. Mm. They were just they, they they radiated an energy that was so it was beauty filled. There was something about that encounter, the way she responded to them, and they were responding to her, and there was just a lot of laughter, and and I could feel love present there, oh, and it made me feel really good. That's exactly it. And we miss those encounters when we have judgments about the other. We may think of ourselves as very inclusive beings, but, you know, it's sort of like Jewish people are okay, but I wouldn't want my daughter to marry one. You know, it's it's like fundamentalists, they, they, they have a right to believe what they believe, but, but there's a kind of armoring of the heart that we sometimes do. So that's what I mean by the rigorous harrowing, in many cases, harrowing path of love is that it requires us to continuously strip ourselves of what we think we know about the spiritual path or anything else and to really show up for what is uh, with an open heart and and you're noticing the radiance of god love on the faces of these young men who probably have very different politics from you or probably probably but you nevertheless because your heart is open and you have found the god of love in mysterious places before you know not to turn away from any of its manifestations, and that's a perfect example, Justine. Well, let's let's talk about the the welcoming of the stranger. Uh, that that is a theme that runs through all of the three traditions. Can you say something about that? Yes. Well, this this book, God of Love, really follows kind of two streams of wisdom that that join Judaism, Christianity, and Islam at at the core. By the way, the book could have been about all, like it could have included Hinduism, Buddhism, Native American traditions, and all others. It's just that I was commissioned to try to offer some of the essential teachings of those three Abrahamic faiths that are in such strife right now and have been, of course, since the beginning of their history together. But this is a particularly urgent, crucial, fractured time um, where these, where it's really needed to see the, the interconnectedness of those three wisdom ways. But the two streams that I'm following in God of Love are the social justice stream that talks about the, the teachings that help us meet each other in the place of the heart, that reflect our relationship with the divine in so far as they all say that the true test of our relationship with God is how we treat one another, and in fact, the earth herself. So that's one stream in this book, the social justice teachings. Welcoming the stranger is a perfect example of that. 
The other stream that I'm following in the book is more what you were referring to at the beginning of this section, the ecstatic, mystical stream of the three religions having to do with longing for God, with suffering, with ecstasy, and with also with contemplative practice, with the silence and the stillness and the suchness, really the, the path of non-dualism. Because while personally I am definitely a bhakta or an ecstatic devotional being, my namesake Mirabai was all about that. As you know, she was devoted to Lord Krishna, the God of love. Um, the other part of me, Mirabai, and I think of many of our, of our listeners and many of the people who are reading this book, is almost the opposite. It's the non-dual side in the Hindu tradition, the Advaita Vedanta side of, of the spiritual path, which is a, a, more about resting in the emptiness of not knowing, in the suchness, in formlessness. And those two aspects of the spiritual path have always been equally powerful inside of me. And for years, I felt like I had to pick one, that I either got to be a devotional being having an ecstatic love relationship with the divine as the as Rudolf Otto would say the holy other at whose feet I fall in worship and adoration and awe or the one who sits in the silence and the stillness and rests in the emptiness of the divine transcendent formless and I was equally inclined toward both and I and I didn't know which one to pick now that leads me to to something I feel very passionate about and that I'm speaking about a lot around this book, which is that there is a kind of violence or at least an abusive quality to the message that I received throughout my youth on the spiritual path, which is that it's very nice for you to be dipping into the wisdom wells of all of these different traditions and tasting them, but eventually, Mirabai, you're going to have to pick one and go deep. So what, what I mean by a kind of inherent violence in that message is there's something wrong with you if you embrace multiple traditions, that somehow you're not doing it right, you're not going deep, you're, you're digging many, this is the cliche, digging many shallow wells hoping to reach water. A beautiful variation I heard on that theme is you're using many different tools to dig, dig a single deep well. And what I found in my youth as I was ex experiencing, not experimenting with, deeply, profoundly encountering different religious and spiritual traditions is that I was going deep in, in various areas. There was nothing superficial about it. I was one of those young people so on fire with longing and love for God that I would do whatever it took to have that encounter of love that my soul was longing for. So there was nothing superficial or lightweight. Um, I would have, I, I would stay up all night chanting. I would, I would pray until I wept tears of blood if I had to, to, to rip the veils that stood between my beloved and me. I mean, I'm still that way, but a little mm -hmm. less, um, I take it a little less seriously than I used to because I've grown and I've suffered. Suffering really kind of tends to strip the seriousness <laughs> yes. Away. But yes, yeah, so that's the same thing with asking someone to pick a single religion to the exclusion of the others. 
with the assumption that that's the only way to have a deep and profound and authentic spiritual experience is similar to saying you're you know you're either a devotional you either have a devotional practice or you have a non-dual contemplative practice and you have to kind of choose and if you're doing one at, to the exclusion of the other the one camp will say that you're wrong and and um, why can't we embrace it all if it if it brings love into our midst? You mentioned the word longing uh, several times, and some of us are very uncomfortable with being in that state of it might seem as if it's um, a non-resting state. You know what I mean? Sure. That that longing, just the idea of longing itself, is as, as a vehicle for coming to understand the divine presence of the mystery is like always being uncomfortable, always being in a state of... Agitation or something. Yes. Can you talk about that? Sure. And I'm not advocating that we live there. I don't think it's possible because it may be for teenagers. Um, <laughs> that kind of... Because there's an element of angst to that, to that state. But... It's it's not a permanent, constant state of agitation. You can actually rest in the sweetness of longing, and I often do. And I know that you, you and your listeners know that state. For instance, when you read a certain poem by Rumi or by Mary Oliver or by Rilke or by Mirabai, my namesake, and there is this feeling that rises in your belly of it, it's a combination of sweetness and pain. That's the state of longing that I'm talking about. It's our birthright. It's part of being an alive human being, responsive to the inflow of the sacred wherever we encounter it. I mean, there are times when I see a magpie land on the fountain outside the patio, outside my office window, and I feel like my heart is going to break open. It's not an uncomfortable thing. It's just a human moment of feeling the exquisite beauty and fragility of of life in form. And it's both ecstatic and painful. It's profound and no big deal. It's just part of being a human being, walking around with it with your heart as open as you can as you can muster. So if if some of us are are dabbling. Not well. That's not the right word, is it? It's tasting. not dabbling. Tasting. <laughs> all right. Tasting from the huge banquet offered to us, we can be assured that we can still go deep with that taste. Yes, absolutely. That the thing is that um, I feel that we are endowed with a faculty of discrimination that enables us to discern between the jewels of wisdom that are available to us through these various spiritual and religious traditions and the toxins. So that we're we're like bees that are meant to to drink the nectar and create the honey that will sustain us and give us something to offer to feed a hungry, broken world. I'm here with Mirabai Starr. She's the author of God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, 
Christianity and Islam. And if you'd like to be in touch with her or know more about her work, you can go to her website, mirabaistar.com, and Mirabai is spelled M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mirabai Starr. She's the author of God of Love. Mirabai, some of us have grown up in a certain tradition, in a certain religious tradition. And there may be a time, and I know that this is true in my life, there may be a time when that tradition no longer serves for whatever reason. Um, For me, I remember it really came... um, I actually got kicked out of the Episcopal Church. Wow. Of How'd all things. I mean, how, how can you manage that? That that one is like, that just can't be true. Uh, but, you, you know, I, I now look at that as such, a, I was just so angry with the priest and what he said to me about how I needed to live my life. And this is the way it was going to be. Otherwise, I just couldn't have communion anymore. Mm. And it made me so angry. I just, just burst into a whole new space of questioning, questioning what am I doing here? What is my religion? What do I believe? What is my connection with the divine? And it really started me on the path. But in that starting on that path, there was a deep, deep bereavement, a deep, deep sadness in me that that I had to let go of all of that which was holding me up. And now what? I, you know, I don't know. Now what? I. It was a very scary moment for me. And so, in reading your book, in being with your book, communing with your book, mm-hmm. I would even say, mm-hmm. because it's more than just reading with all the wonderful um, poetry you use and scriptures that you use from various places. All just, it's just full of your own stories. So in reading it, there were two paragraphs that just really popped out at me that I would love for you to share with our listeners, if you would. I would love to. I'd love to. And and I'm with you that the power of the spiritual meltdown um, is something that I, is to be celebrated, but it isn't necessarily comfortable. But but my advice is when you're having a spiritual meltdown, just go ahead and, and melt into it. So. When that arises, um, this is what I'm addressing in this in this section from the chapter called Radical Wonderment. And this section is called At the Feet of the Mystery. You dare not speak these questions aloud, not to your parents, not to your priest or minister, not to your sheikh or your rabbi. It took these people decades to establish a solid foundation of belief amid the ever-shifting tectonic plates of this life. 
To them, this dropping down into emptiness is not good news. It looks like a crisis of faith. They will rush in to fix you. But you are intrigued by your own unraveling. You would like to see what comes next. It is a relief to know nothing, to want nothing. If this is an ailment, you think, may I never recover. It is as if one day you leaned on the edifice of recycled spiritual sensations and established theological constructs, and the whole thing came tumbling down. As if the curtain had gone up, the house lights switched on, and the audience vanished. There you are, in an empty theater, with the light in your eyes and a sweet silence in the air. You dangle your legs over the stage like a child and blink in wonderment. Oh, you say, I got so lost in the play, I forgot what was real. Oh, thank you for reading that. I, I, I just uh, the imaging in that the images uh, the the tectonic plates moving the the leaning against the edifice that so held you up and suddenly it just gives way I it just it just spoke very deeply to me can you say something about that you know I think that I was primarily influenced in that um, understanding not so much the imagery as the insight. Uh, by John of the Cross, St. John of the Cross, who is famous for the dark night of the soul. And many people use that term, dark night of the soul, as as we have spoken about before on this program, in fact, um, as a, a kind of uh, experience of depression or anxiety or trauma in your life when you're going through a difficult divorce or or the death of a loved one or some other life-changing challenge. challenge. Um, th- Life-changing challenges can, in fact, be an opportunity to have a dark night of the soul experience. But the dark night, according to John of the Cross, is a deep inner experience that may or may not have any connection to external circumstances. The dark night of the soul is, is very much what we were just talking about. It's a, it's a stage of the spiritual path that John considers to be the stage of the adept rather than the beginner when that which we relied upon to to hold us on our journey begins to dissolve and we're no longer propped up by the beliefs and the spiritual feelings that used to sustain us. There are actually two aspects to this process. One is is a kind of loosening of attachment to the what he calls the sensory aspect of the spiritual path. In other words, how it's supposed to feel to have an encounter with the divine. For instance, I, I love to do kirtan. So when I'm chanting the names of God, I'm having this very profound sensory experience of connectedness to the sacred. It's, it's addictive. That addiction, he says, in the dark night of the soul has to go. We have to let go. It doesn't mean we can never oh, chant again. it feels again. so good, It feels though. so good, feel-good spirituality. It motivates us. There's nothing wrong with it. But in the dark night of the soul, it's taken from us. We can no longer feel those familiar goodies that we used to get when we engage in spiritual practice. So it's a first sign that we might be having a dark night of the soul experience when we start feeling nothing where we used to feel so much. The second stage of the dark night of the soul is is much more painful, and that's the 
the conceptual dark night, when not only can we no longer feel our familiar old connectedness, but we can no longer conceive of God or the spiritual path. Oh, yes. It becomes very empty and meaningless. And John says, the only thing to do when that dark night comes upon our souls is to rest in it and to surrender and to yield and to let go of all our old attachments to the way the spiritual path is supposed to be. And when we do let go and let down into that darkness and into that emptiness, we find what he calls an ineffable sweetness begins to rise into that hollowed out container. And there's no, there's no set time for that. It could be years. I'm afraid so. <laughs> it could be decades. <laughs> or it could be a very short time. I mean, right. And we can go in and out of it and do throughout our lives. And we often think, as oh, John... Oh, that's a good point. Yes. And John says we might, we're likely to think we're doing something wrong when our, spiritual, our familiar spiritual feelings and concepts begin to fall away. We think we're, give, we're giving up on God, or God's giving up on us, or somehow we've we've we deserve this this emptiness and aridity. And in fact, it's it's a state of grace. And if we can step out of our own way, we will experience that ineffable sweetness that pours into that emptiness. So, what's your suggestion when we're in that place? And it, 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 there, no practice is is really sufficing for us. No, uh, we're we're feeling rather empty of spirit. What would you suggest that we could do to help calm our spirit, calm our soul? Teresa of Avila, who was John of the Cross's mentor, would say, "Go peel some potatoes and make a soup." <laughs> I would say something similar. Definitely to not try, to not push, to not um, try to muster up those familiar old spiritual sensations that used to sustain us. Because what's happening, according to John of the Cross, is it's as if, and he actually says this, God has been feeding us from her own breasts in the beginning of our spiritual journey. And the beginning may last also for many years, that feel-good period where we're getting a lot of um, goodies from our spiritual practices. But at this stage, what's happening, he says, is that we're being weaned and that Abraham and Sarah are throwing a big party to celebrate the weaning of Isaac. But Isaac is sitting in the corner screaming his head off because he wants the baby food. He wants to be fed from the warm breast. He doesn't want to eat what John of the Cross calls the crusty, robust bread of, of grown-ups. And so we're going to have a little spiritual tantrum, most likely, when we encounter these periods of aridity and emptiness. But if we can stop whining and show up and explore that state of emptiness with curiosity and tenderness for our own sweet selves and allow the divine to make its own presence known in its own way without our interjecting our opinion on the matter, um, likely the, the, the alchemy will begin to happen before our eyes. One of the, the advice that you give, well, one of your practices is the practice of writing. Yes. And uh, so you, that's been a, a, a helpmate to you. So talk about that practice of writing and how we, those of us who might 
decide to participate in that way. Mm-hmm. Tell us how, how that could be. And there are times when, for me, by the way, even my writing practice, which is my old standby, was became impossible for, for me in the face of that harrowing dark night experience. But most of the time it works very well because writing for me is a witnessing exercise. It's a, it's a process of inquiry and truth-telling. So I can write myself through my deepest questions because there's nothing that's off limits when it's just my pen uh, on the paper in my notebook or at the computer if you prefer. So writing, I borrow this practice from Natalie Goldberg. So for those of you who are not familiar with her her groundbreaking original book, um, Writing Down the Bones, and and the one I love even more, uh, Wild Mind, it gives very clear instructions about how to write our way through the emptiness, write our way through to a deeper and deeper uh, process of of questioning, of inquiry, until we get to the real question, until we we find that vein of gold that may or not may not be at all what we thought was happening. But the only way to get there is to kind of peel through the layers by writing through the layers and finding out what that original question is, or that beginner's mind that we that we can only come to by by um, eliminating and peeling away that which is not the authentic experience or the true question do you do you suggest that we might do this with others like it's, in a group yeah it's wonderful right i, I know this is, this is right up your alley too <laughs> yeah. if you can get together with two or three friends and and write together this is the way we do it and this is a natalie natalie goldberg thing and i've been writing with natalie personally for since i was 12 years old so what we do is whoever is leading the group and it's a very egalitarian thing where we trade this the leadership around we show up with usually a poem or a couple of lines from an essay or a book that we love and we read a passage to the group aloud, and then we as the leader pick one line, and everybody writes that one line at the top of their page, and then we say, 10 minutes, go. And you just write whatever arises in response to that line for 10 minutes without stopping, without editing. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm here with Mirabai Starr, and she's the author of God of Love. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. by Star, and she's the author of God of Love. And Mirabai, you talk in this book, you there you have a section, in fact it was the in ending section of the book, you talk about the interspiritual path. 
Now, we've, we've used for years, we've talked about the interfaith path or interfaith. So is, is it the same? Hmm. Um, it's, they're certainly interconnected. But the, I would say the primary distinction between the traditional interfaith dialogue that's been going on um, in this culture for at least 100 years and made some very important contributions to the process of peace on earth, I think, is interfaith dialogue and people sitting around the table and the effort to understand one another, to share what is true and meaningful in their own religions and to listen deeply to what matters in other people's religions. That's the interfaith movement and I think it's been a very beautiful and important one. The interspiritual path, which is what I'm talking about in God of Love and what many of us are, have been doing for a long time, decades, you, you and Michael certainly have been on an interspiritual path for a long time, is much more about experiencing the heart of these religious and spiritual traditions, not just understanding them intellectually, but experiencing them through practices and prayers and rituals and other kind of heart-centered activities that bring us out of our heads and into our bodies and into, into our, our heart centers. This is a term that was coined by Brother Wayne Teasdale in his beautiful book, The Mystic Heart. And many of us have, have really taken that term and, and really tried to apply it in, in a way to, it's helped, um, it's helped shape what we're already up to, which is embracing the sacred in multiple traditions, with discipline, with, uh, with passion. Mirabai, you speak about keeping to the Sabbath, having a Sabbath in our life. And you talk about it as being a radical act. And I, I think, you know, in these days when we are so inundated with activity to keep up with modern or postmodern life, uh, it's, it's just enormous. And to, to take time for a Sabbath, number one, why is it important and how may we accomplish it? Mm. Any advice you might have? Boy, that's a perfect example too, Justine, of what we were talking about earlier about the rigors of the path of love. I mean, it sounds so nice to take a day of rest. How peaceful and easy that would be. It's the most difficult practice in my life is every Friday night when the sun goes down to say, yes, I will put it all away. I'm going to put the to-do list aside. I am not going to turn on my computer. I am not going to let myself be driven by my daily compulsions, but I'm going to just show up and be. That's the hardest thing uh, that I know to do in a life that's just overflowing with demands all the time. By the way, my my Shabbat practice, my weekly Sabbath practice, has inspired people of all different faith traditions. I have Episcopal priests who have read my book or sat with me in, in retreats and are now honoring the Sabbath when the sun goes down on Friday night to when the sun goes down on Saturday, um, in the, which is a very Jewish, Jewish practice, but really is, is accessible to everyone and very useful to everyone. So here's what I do. On Friday night, um, in the Jewish tradition, the Shabbat, you, you kindle the Sabbath lights and you say the, the prayer uh, for the for the Sabbath, and and so you can do any you can invent your own rituals. In the Jewish tradition, you light the Sabbath candles, you and you say a blessing. Then you say a blessing over a cup of wine, and then the blessing 
over a loaf of bread, we use challah bread. And so you can do any variation on this theme. You don't even have to do any ritual at all, or you can do some kind of quiet, spontaneous inner ritual. But a, a ritual is is a good marking. It kind of helps us to settle in in some way, don't you That's feel? why they were engineered. This is spiritual technology. You know, it's very precise and and it's very useful. So yes, I, whether you make up your ritual or not, I'm, I'm with you, Justine, having some kind of ritual to invoke or mark the enter, entrance into sacred time and sacred space. That's exactly what that is. You're building a container of sacred space um, in time, which happens to be Friday night to Saturday night in the Jewish tradition. So there's the invocation. Then we usually follow that with a festive meal and invite friends if we can or family members so that you break bread together and you sit together and you eat together and you drink wine or whatever you do. You may not be um, someone who drinks wine or eats bread, but whatever your version is of coming together with your loved ones, although I do it alone. If I'm traveling, I'll, I'll sit in a restaurant and, and whisper my prayers and and it's the sweetness of, of entering into that space follows me wherever I go. Now, here's the hard, that's the easy part. The hard part is for the next 24 hours, I unplug and I do this in a very conscious way. So I literally don't turn on the computer, which is very challenging for me because I have so much work all the time that happens over the, the electronic. I think many would, you, would yes. concur with that I'm one. Sure all of you, so many of you do. And I try to have Saturday as a restful day, as a contemplative day, but also as a day of celebration. My friend Tessa Balecki, the Carmelite uh, monk, is has a wonderful way of talking about what it means to be a contemplative. To be a contemplative is not necessarily to sit on a cushion and, and watch your breath all day long. To be a contemplative means to bring presence into the moment, whatever it is you're doing, so that if you're if you're cooking a meal or if you're taking a walk or if you're checking at your email, you're trying to do it with consciousness and presence and awareness and celebration and reverence for, for the holiness that is available in every moment. That's what it is to be a contemplative. So for me, Shabbat is a deeply contemplative practice of trying to inhabit fully the moment for that period of time every week so that I remove myself from my habitual distractions, which are incredibly compelling and addictive, and show up for the moment, whatever it may be, to be with family, to read poetry. I try to read poetry mm. in Shabbat because poetry requires that you just be present. You can't flit through a poem and not be with it. But for me also, Justine, Shabbat is a political act because what I'm also doing on Shabbos is not consuming the earth's resources any more than I have to. So in addition to not participating in the electronic media on Shabbat, I try not to shop or buy stuff. There is farmer's market in our community on Saturday, but I feel like shopping at the farmer's market is, is right in line with, with keeping the Sabbath holy. Um, but yeah, it's not that I don't drive because I'm an Orthodox Jew, but to the extent that I am able, I try not to use up the earth's resources. I try not to be a mindless consumer, but rather a mindful participant in the holy mystery. Well, and, and also you're joining with many others. Just the idea of that is so beautiful. You you speak in your book, you mentioned Tessa Bialecki, and um, she, along with Father Dave, I think, um, mm -hmm. they've, they've really established 
going back to the desert. They they live in the high desert um, uh, near Crestown, and some of our listeners might remember Tessa from an earlier interview. And she she and Father Dave gave you a present one time, and you mentioned <laughs> this in your book, of a couple of nights in their Hogan. So describe what that might what that was like for you. Well, the really the greatest gift that anyone can give me often in my busy life, I'm sure many of you can relate to this, is silence and solitude. So one year on my birthday, which I share with, with Father Dave Denny, who's a wonderful poet, and um, Father Dave and Tessa are the people who founded the Desert Foundation, which is dedicated to the interconnected wisdom of the desert traditions, particularly Judaism. Christianity and Islam. And they live as hermits in the high desert of the Sangre de Cristos in southern Colorado in the San Luis Valley. And one year on Father Dave and my birthday, which we often celebrate together, they invited me to come up and just have a hermitage in this hogan in the middle of a meadow in the high desert and just spend 24 hours by myself in the middle of the wilderness. And and it, to have friends who recognize that the greatest gift they can give you is the silence and the solitude and the oh, radical yes. simplicity of, of a hermitage in the desert, it was a profound gift for me. One of the other mentions that you do in the book that spoke to my heart, uh, I, you, you, you were talking about the days of awe. And these are like in the Jewish holidays, there's this time, this longer period period of time that we take out for, for renewing ourselves. In Christianity, it might be Lent. That's right. In Islam, it's Ramadan. Yes. And, um, but you mentioned a chant, and it's a chant I'm very familiar with, and that's the return again chant. And when I read the, the words, you know, it's return again, return again, return to the land of your soul, I think. And um and I could only hear it in music when I was reading it. Return to who you are. Return to what you are. Return to where, where you are. are. Born and reborn born again. again. It just—it's a haunting, haunting chant, and I think it goes across all those lines, doesn't it? You know, Justine, it does, and so many of the heart practices of any one tradition spill out and apply to all of them. And that's really what this book, God of Love, is about. It's about the celebration of the presence of love in many different uh, holy houses and how it's really just one home. Mirabai, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. It was an ecstatic experience. Oh, goody. <laughs> it was for me. I've been here with Mirabai Starr, and she's the author of God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. If you'd like to be in touch with her and know more about her work, go to her website, mirabaistar.com, and that's spelled M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R. Com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3444. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio and Media in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org 
where you can find nearly a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our archive and many other resources. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Michael Toms. Our managing producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer, supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, and thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, to become a member of Friends of New Dimensions, or to purchase downloadable copies of this and many other New Dimensions programs, visit our website, newdimensions.org. Or you can reach us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Join us next time as we explore new dimensions.